a recent ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court could change access to reproductive health care in the state. The justices said that embryos frozen for IVF procedures are children. So Friday, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos would have the same legal standing as children who are born. Sabrina Molly is a national health reporter at The Post and covers maternal and children's health. Legal experts have said this opens up a can of worms for people who are undergoing IVF treatments and what that means for their frozen embryos and their whole fertility process. IVF is short for in vitro fertilization. It's a procedure that people turn to when they're struggling with infertility. Specialists retrieve eggs from a patient and fertilize them with sperm outside the body in order to form embryos that can later be transferred to the patient's uterus. The procedure is difficult and expensive, so multiple embryos are often frozen at the same time. Sometimes, embryos are destroyed in the process. But the justices say that those destroyed embryos could be the subject of wrongful death lawsuits. Because of this Alabama ruling, Sabrina says that clinics are scrambling to figure out how to help patients who want to have kids without risking legal action. Two of the state's eight IVF clinics have already paused the procedure. They're unsure of how to proceed with IVF treatments, how to proceed with freezing embryos. So a few clinics in Alabama have decided to pause embryo transfers. They're still doing egg retrievals and other types of fertility treatments, but as far as embryos transferring specifically, they're pausing that. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and it's Thursday, February 22nd. Today, Sabrina explains the story at the heart of this court case and how recognizing embryos as children could change IVF access across the country. This case centers on an incident that happened in a hospital in Alabama in December of 2020. Can you explain what exactly happened there? So there was a fertility clinic. It's called the Center for Reproductive Medicine. And a patient was able to enter one of the facilities where the frozen embryos were kept. And when embryos are kept, they're kept in sub-zero temperatures to preserve them for use whenever the patient's ready. So the patient apparently got their hands on the frozen embryos. They got freezer burn, basically. Wait, they so they went into, they just like went poking around? Wandered into the facility, opened up the chamber that the embryos were stored in. Those are freezing temperatures, which can potentially burn you. They mm-hmm. got a freezer burn, dropped them, and destroyed the embryos. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you can just imagine, like, how frustrating it must have been for everyone involved that a patient would do something like that. Right. So that's why the people in the case said that they wanted damages for mental anguish and emotional distress. And that's when the court said that, yes, you know, um, the facility was responsible for keeping these embryos safe. And because of this, they lost, quote unquote, extrauterine children. And I think it's helpful to understand a little bit about how IVF works, too, to get the specifics of this. Um, Because I think people can sometimes confuse egg freezing with embryo freezing. Can you explain a little bit, like, what is IVF and these frozen embryos? Like, what are they? What has happened to them to get them to that point? And what are they intended for after? 
So IVF is a form of assisted reproductive technology. It's been around since the 1970s, and it's when you take a person's egg and you fertilize it with a sperm in a Petri dish. Now, after that's done, the fertilized egg has to take a few days to become an embryo. Now that embryo is either freshly implanted into a person who would like to get pregnant, or those embryos are frozen for future use. Um, With egg retrievals, the eggs are just taken from the person, and they are also frozen, but they're not fertilized. So they can be used for the future, they can be donated, but a lot of women turn to egg freezing to preserve future fertility options. So the embryo freezing, they're kind of further along because they already have been fertilized with sperm and that they're kind of ready to go. Correct. So the embryo freezing happens on day four or five, depending on what your fertility clinic suggests. Um, This is after the fertilized egg has multiplied and formed, formed multiple cells. And how common is IVF these days? So 2% of babies born in the U.S. are a product of IVF. The process of IVF can run some couples tens of thousands of dollars for one treatment, and that treatment will involve medicines such as hormones being injected to retrieve the eggs, and then the process of going to get the eggs retrieved at a facility, then having those eggs fertilized, then having them implanted. So it's a huge process that takes weeks, and it's really expensive. Um, A lot of insurance companies don't cover the procedure completely, so you're going to have to spend money out of pocket, whether that's for the procedure or for medications. Um, The medications are usually ordered by specialty pharmacies, and those are pretty pricey. Wow. I saw a number that there are about 1,200 IVF procedures that took place in Alabama in 2021. And so I feel like any person who has gone through IVF um, knows how financially, physically taxing it can be, how emotionally taxing it is. Here's about this one case in Alabama and the circumstances of it. And it's like, I get that, you know, people would be so mad and sad that this dream that got dashed by a patient who dropped uh, these embryos. But how did that spin out into this question of personhood for the embryos? Well, that's been a long-standing fight for the anti-abortion movement, where they've tried to define personhood at an earlier and earlier stage. And before this ruling was given on Friday, I think the Alabama Supreme Court had defined embryos as property, um, so it wouldn't fall under the same rules or legalities that a child would. But because of this case, I think this sets a precedent now for defining personhood at a earlier stage than previously was thought. And Alabama has one of the strictest abortion laws in the country. There is no abortion, even in the case of rape or incest. So a lot of women's rights groups have said that this is just another blow to their reproductive freedoms. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that this is actually, this ruling in some ways is about abortion as well as IVF, that it's part of that strategy of getting personhood to be earlier and earlier in the reproductive process and an attempt to limit access to abortion. Correct. And this doesn't only impact women, it also impacts um, sometimes same-sex couples who are looking to turn to IVF treatments or fertility treatments to start their families. So it just is an onslaught of different potential problems that this could bring families across Alabama. After the break, Sabrina explains why this ruling has caused shock and confusion for patients and providers in Alabama. We'll be right back. 
you talk about the ways in which this is having an immediate effect on um, fertility treatment in Alabama? And what are the kind of questions that providers or patients are having now because of this ruling? Well, like you said, there is a pause in treatments at two facilities in Alabama, so we're already seeing the immediate consequences of this. And providers are just really concerned because, you know, if somebody were to make a mistake in a lab and potentially destroy an embryo, would that physician or embryologist be on the hook for criminal activity? So these are the things that a lot of these healthcare providers are thinking of. Um, they're also concerned that if the embryos are forced to be kept because, you know, they can't be destroyed, will people have to donate their embryos? Uh, if there is a divorce proceeding going on, like who has custody over these quote-unquote extrauterine children? So all of these things and legalities are the things that lawyers, advocates, um, even patients are thinking about right now. Interesting. Yeah, because it seems like there's almost two categories of things that can happen to these frozen embryos, that you could lose them by accident, which I understand in some ways is just part of the process, right? That when you unfreeze some of these embryos, that there's some risk they won't be viable after that. But also that um, destroying embryos is kind of part of the process, that most people have more than they intend to use, and that the idea is that some of them are destroyed afterward. So when you think about the attrition rate of fertility, so a person will go in and get 10 eggs retrieved, and those 10 eggs will turn into seven fertilized um, zygotes, and then those zygotes will be three embryos that are viable. And maybe out of those three, somebody does genetic testing and realizes that only one will give them a healthy living child. So that's kind of how it the process is. And with this ruling, people are worried that they're going to have um, children with potential medical problems um, if they're forced to carry embryos that have genetic abnormalities. And not only that, a lot of people will potentially donate their embryos to science. So there's more scientific advancements setting these embryos. Um, science is an ongoing process. So being able to have access to embryos that people no longer want and donating them to science um, could put a halt in further innovation. And also, I think there's just, you know, couples can decide, do we want one kid? Do we want three kids? And that, you know, the, the idea that just because we have these embryos there, um, that that means that you have to use all of them. I think a lot of people on the face of that would say, I don't need to justify why I only want to have one pregnancy versus multiple, um, that that's a right that they should have. Right. And when you think about this process, if this becomes an issue where embryos are considered extrauterine children, which the court said, going through the IVF process, you don't want to go through multiple egg retrievals. It's really hard on a woman's body. So by going through one egg retrieval, fertilizing like 10 eggs and then having those embryos frozen for later use is probably the ideal thing to do for a person's body. Um, but if those embryos are not allowed to be frozen um, for fear of thawing and then being destroyed, then having to go through that process over and over again for just one child um, at a time seems really daunting for many people. And scientists and physicians have said it seems pretty unsafe. There is um, the potential for ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. So when your ovaries are so stimulated that um, you could have the risk of rupturing an ovary, um, there are too many follicles. So you don't want to keep doing the egg retrieval process over and over again. So doing it one time, getting as many eggs as you possibly can, then going forward with the fertilization process is probably the ideal route that many physicians would recommend.
So it sounds like the potential implications of this are that it could make IVF more expensive for couples if they have to go through multiple rounds. Um, Also, the question of just being able to um, have insurance pay for it at all, that insurance companies are looking at this, like maybe we shouldn't be covering IVF, that doctors are worried that um, they could be sued for malpractice if uh, frozen embryos are accidentally lost um, in the process of freezing or unfreezing them. Um, But I'm curious, like, who is happy about this decision? So I think a lot of people in the anti-abortion movement are really happy about this decision because to them, this signals a earlier definition of what personhood would be deemed under the law. So having the extra uterine embryo considered a person is just another tally for them in their anti-abortion movement to, to, to define an embryo as a potential child. And what is the chance that this is going to spread beyond Alabama, that this ruling in Alabama will either inspire other states to pass um, laws that define uh, embryos as as people or that um, courts in other states will consider making similar judgments? I think that's the fear of um, people who advocate for reproductive health is that it will spread. Um, when one state sets a precedent. Sometimes it can trickle over to other states. Um, and without any sort of federal ruling that protects fertility treatments or IVF, um, it's really up to states to decide what they're going to do and how they're going to handle fertility treatments like this one. And then in Alabama, given the fact that there are all these questions about what the implications are for this immediately to the point that you have two fertility centers that have paused some of their operations because they don't know what to do, is there more clarity that will come? I mean, what does the process look like of getting more answers for these fertility clinics about what this actually means? I think that's the big question a lot. It's going to depend on lawyers. It's going to depend on advocates. It's kind of one of those things where time will tell. That's why the fertility clinics pause their treatments because they have no idea what's going to happen next. Interesting. You know, Sabrina, I feel like there's this real irony here. Obviously, the abortion rights conversation is a controversial one, and there are a lot of different Americans who feel differently about that. But IVF, to me, seems much less controversial, right? Like, all different kinds of people use IVF to conceive. There are plenty of people who don't believe in abortion or wouldn't choose an abortion for themselves who have used IVF, who consider IVF this miracle that has allowed them to have a family. And yet this is a decision that will make it more difficult for them or for other people to actually start families. Well, that's why some folks have told me that when the Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, that a lot of people who are anti-abortion didn't see this coming. Um, But many abortion activists and women's rights activists have said that this is what they expected. They expected this to unravel this way. And you're right, a lot of people who would be anti-abortion probably do support IVF, um, but many of them have said they would choose to donate their embryos. um, And I don't think the thought was there that if an embryo accidentally gets destroyed, could you be held civilly liable um, for damages? But um, I think that's now something that's on the top of people's minds. Sabrina, what are the questions that you have going forward in this? So I'm curious to know, like you said, how will this trickle to other states and what's going to happen to the frozen embryos that people already have? Are they going to be able to 
use them in the future? If they are thawed and they get destroyed, will they be held liable for that? Um, who is on the hook here? Is it going to be the physicians? Is it going to be the facility? Um, are people going to be held personally responsible because these are their quote-unquote extrauterine children? Um, so I am curious to see how the legalities of this all play out. Sabrina, thank you so much. Thank you. Sabrina Molly is a national health reporter for The Post. Before we go, a few other stories on our radar today. This morning, officials at Yale announced that they will once again require standardized test scores in applications. For context, Yale, like many other universities, canceled this requirement during COVID. And since then, they've kept the test-optional policy, the thought being that requiring SAT or ACT scores in applications hurt disadvantaged or low-income students. But now they have crunched the numbers, and officials found that not considering those scores might actually be hurting disadvantaged students, making it more difficult to identify smart kids with fewer resources who otherwise might be overlooked. So Yale is bringing the requirement back. And other universities around the country are considering the same thing. Also, we are 46 days away from the total solar eclipse that will be crossing North America on April 8th. You might remember, the last time we had a great American eclipse was back in 2017. Wow, we're looking at the sunset. Oh my gosh! People who were in the path of totality got to see the sky go dark, this incredible scene. But somehow, I missed it. I totally regretted not going to see it. And I'm not going to let that happen this year. If you have an interest in going to see the eclipse, you should check out this very useful guide by our colleagues on the graphics team, showing the path of totality and where in the country you should head if you want to minimize your chances of a cloudy day. Hint, think Texas. We'll share a link to that in our show notes and at postreports.com. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you find this kind of coverage and deep reporting useful to you, one way that you could help us is by sharing this podcast with someone in your life. Send them a link to a recent Post Reports episode, or better yet, take their phone, open up their podcast app, find Post Reports, and hit follow. They will thank you, and so will we. Today's show is produced by Sabby Robinson with additional help from Peter Bresnan. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>